Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in with us. If this is your first time listening or you'd just like to reach out, feel free to shoot an email to hello at capitalcitychristian.org, and I'd be glad to talk with you. This is week three of a series where we're going through the book of Colossians, where a guy named Paul writes about a big Jesus for life's big problems. Jesus needs to be first in our lives, and this week, our discipleship minister, Todd Lane, is going to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 23, where Paul writes about how Jesus is supreme in everything and sufficient for everything that we need in life. I hope you'll enjoy this week's message. Let's get started. Pray with me. Jesus, name above all names, your name echoes through heaven and earth. Your name is worshiped day and night in heaven. And when we really understand your greatness, our best efforts seem real inadequate. Our worship seems inadequate. Uh, the words I'm going to try to say here over the next few minutes seem inadequate, but we're going to trust in the promise you told us that if you are lifted up, you will draw people to you. So I pray by talking about you today, by trying to lift you up, that you're going to draw some people a little closer to you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Some circumstances and events change you. Some of you in this room have fought in wars. War changes you. Some of you in this room have battled life. Maybe you've been through a divorce or maybe you had experienced the death of a loved one and life changes you. At the end of August, I spent a week in New York City getting a certification, and my wife Rebecca went with me, and at night, we'd just kind of, I'd finish about five o'clock, and we'd kind of take off and just be around New York City the entire evening. We walked our tails off. Now, we learned to use the subway, and so we got pretty adept at that, so we could kind of go virtually anywhere in Manhattan. Well... My training ended on Thursday at 5 o'clock, and so we chose to stay over another day. And the next morning on Friday, we went to the 9-11 Memorial Park at the World Trade Center. I saw the doc about this yesterday, and we said, you know, some of you in here, especially those of your students, you may know about 9-11, but for those of us that experience, it's just a little different. See, two or terrorists flew two planes into the World Trade Center buildings. That day brought our nation to a screeching halt. See, most of you, it's one of those days that you can kind of, September 11th, 2001, you probably remember where you were. I was working at Southland Church in Lexington, and they just built their current worship facility, and there were, there's like 1,500 chairs on the, the main floor, and the staff was going to try to move all those chairs in there, and as we were in the middle of that, someone told us about what had happened, and for the next pretty much late morning and all afternoon, we were glued to a TV. Here's some video that I shot at the Memorial Park just with my phone. And you can kind of see there's two enormous waterfalls that go into what they call reflecting pools that are actually in the footprints of the North and the South Tower. Around those reflecting pools, you can kind of see there on the side right here, you'll see some names of 3,000 people who died that day. It's very sobering to see all the names of the people that died. You see, that event changed the life of 3,000 families. That event, they said, changed the south of Manhattan for the next five to seven years. That event changed the financial district in Wall Street. That, that event changed our nation. I mean, just get on an airplane these days. 9-11 is almost like a dividing line between how we used to travel and now how we have to travel. 
We've been going through a series and we're looking at a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of Jesus followers in a little town called Colossae. I believe Paul, the guy who wrote this, had an event in his life that changed his life forever. And I'm going to tell you, I think what happened in that event shaped what he's going to write and talk to us about today. So I want to take just a moment to tell you about that event in his life. First of all, his name at that time wasn't Paul, it was actually Saul. And the name Saul caused Jesus' followers to tremble in their shoes because he was always out to get them. There were times he put people in prison. There was times that he had them killed. And one day he's on this journey to a town called Damascus and it says he's blinded from this light that comes down from heaven and just kind of flashes all around him. He fell to the ground. He couldn't see a thing but he could hear and he heard a voice say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he doesn't even know who this is and so Saul says this right here. He says, who are you, Lord? He doesn't know who it is, but he's smart enough to kind of give them a title because he knows they're big enough to at least blind him. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you'll be told what to do. Guys, Saul was blind for three days. It says his friends kind of helped him up. They took him in the city. It says for three days he didn't eat or drink anything. I kind of tried to imagine, what would it be like to be that blind for three days and just to sit there. I, I, I kind of wonder if he went, you know, am I going crazy? I know I can't see anything, but I hear this voice, but can't see anything. My friends heard the voice. They couldn't see anything. This Jesus has caused me to be blind. And I wonder during that three days, did he try to talk to this Jesus? Did this Jesus talk to him? And I got to tell you, after kind of reading a little bit and studying this, I really believe for three days there was silence. See, silence can be huge. It can, it can have a really big impact in your life. I'll tell you a story. My oldest daughter, Mackenzie, when she was a junior in high school, one night she said she was going to spend the night with a friend. Well, my wife and I, we'd gone out to eat and social media was alive and well at this time. And so she was kind of flipping through some things and she goes, you're not gonna believe this. The family and the girl that Mackenzie was supposed to be spending the night with, they were actually out of town on a college visit. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we realized she had lied to us. So I called her and I said, what are you doing? Now, I'm going to give a, a kid tip here and I'm going to give a parent tip a little later, okay? Kids, students, um, if your parents ever call and go, what are you doing? They know, Okay. <laughs> They know, so just go ahead and be honest if they say, what are you doing, okay? So we told her, we said, you've got 30 minutes to get home. When she arrived, we all sat down. We said, hey, we know what's going on. We told her we were disappointed. We said, uh, you're going to be punished. But we said, we don't really know what the punishment is going to be at this time. We said, we're going to think about it and tell you the next day. Now, I'm going to tell you, when we told her that we were going to think about the punishment, you would have thought we gave her a death sentence, Okay? She cried. She begged to know what the punishment was going to be. So that's the parent tip for you guys that are parents. Don't be so quick to assign punishment. It kills them, okay? It's great, okay? But here's what I tell you. The silence, the waiting she had to do was better than any punishment we could have given. I can tell you this day, I don't remember what the punishment was, but I do remember the silence, 
Saul sat in silence for three days. And then God called a Jesus follower named Ananias to go talk to Saul. I'm sure he was scared to death. And guys, he had good reason. See, Saul was as dangerous as it got for a Christian back then. So Ananias goes to Saul. Look what he says. He says, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, something like scales fell off of his eyes. And he began to regain his sight. Guys, just a little time out there. I wonder how many of us are like Saul. Now, you know, I've been persecuting Christians, but Paul saw himself as very religious at that time. And I wonder how many of us have kind of maybe been doing the religious thing. You've heard a lot about Jesus. Steve just said that up here. He says, if you haven't got that this is about Jesus, you've missed the point. A lot of us know a lot about Jesus, but for some reason, something isn't happening in our life for transformation. Some reason we're not letting him do his work in here. And maybe your prayer today has to be, Jesus, I need a different kind of sight. Man, if there's something keeping me from seeing you the way I need to see you, maybe some scales need to fall today so I can see you for who you really are. From this event, there were some big changes that happened in Saul's life. One of the things that happened was he changed his name from Saul to Paul. Another thing that happened was he went from persecuting Jesus followers to actually he became a Jesus follower. And then his whole mission in life was to get everybody he saw to be a Jesus follower. This event kind of took him from seeing Jesus as, hey, he's this guy who blinded me, to Jesus is really God. Guys, when those scales fell off, he saw him for who he really was. Jesus is God. Now, I think there's a reason that Saul didn't encounter Jesus like some of the other people read about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? Saul... Paul's conversion was a little different because I want you to think about just some of the encounters that happen in the Gospels. We got really got a broad spectrum of things that happen. You've got over here, you've got this guy who is named a rich young ruler. He seemed to have it all together and he even went to Jesus and kind of said, hey, I keep all the Ten Commandments. And when Jesus really pinpointed what was going on in his life, he said, hey, I want you to go sell everything. Give it away. And you know what it says? It says that the guy walked away from Jesus. He walked away and nothing happened to his eyes. But you got this other extreme that you got other people in the Gospels like a Roman soldier. He was part of the death squad. He was part of the crucifixion committee for Jesus. He beat Jesus, probably helped nail him to a cross and somehow through Jesus' death, he's able to look up there and go, surely he was the son of God. What did I do? And maybe his life was changed forever. But see, guys, I think a lot of people, those are kind of these extreme encounters, but there's a lot of people that just kind of fall somewhere in the middle like a blind man who had been blind from birth. Jesus kind of comes up to him and says he spits on the ground, kind of makes some mud, gets some mud and actually come up and puts it on the guy's eyes. Then he says, hey, I want you to go wash in this certain little heli or this pool, this washing pool. And he does. And it says he could see. The man was healed and he was asked by his friends, hey, who healed you? And all he can answer is the man they called Jesus. He didn't really know Jesus. He liked Jesus a lot because he'd healed him, but he didn't know a lot about him. His friends keep asking, the religious leaders especially, they're trying to trap him. And it's almost like 
Some of the faith beyond the healing is brought up because here's what he says to the religious leaders. He says, ever since the world began, no one's been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You see, most of the encounters with Jesus created a greater faith. But guys, Saul's, Saul's event... Saul meeting Jesus was totally different. He didn't walk away saying, hey, I met this guy named Jesus. He walked away from his encounter and his eyes were wide open to the fact that Jesus, he's big and he's God. When I was in middle school, I found myself having difficulty reading the chalkboard, okay? Some of you students may not know what a chalkboard is. They have whiteboards now, okay? Um, but I couldn't see it real well, and so my parents said, hey, we probably need to go to the eye doctor. So how many of you have been to the eye doctor? Most of you, okay. Um, any eye doctors in here? Good, because I really don't like going to the eye doctor, okay? Um, let me tell you a couple of things that I just hate when you go there. You know that puff of air? You know what I'm talking about? Set your chin there. Say, they say, get ready for it. I know they're testing the pressure. You just can't prepare for that. It makes me jump every time, okay? And then I hate it when they put the, you know, they put it up there and they go, um, is number one better or number two better? I can never tell the difference between those things. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I think they're just messing with me. I think they laugh after I leave or something like that. But I got to tell you, when I got glasses... It was amazing the things I could see. The things I hadn't been able to see on the chalkboard were so clear. And I have to be honest with you, as much as I've studied and read and had a lot of thoughts about this, I've done just as much praying for you and I. I am hoping that God does something. He does some work on your eyes today because some of you, you're squinting when it comes to Jesus. And I hope after today you're going to see Jesus much more clearly because of what Paul's going to tell you about the Jesus that he encountered. Now, Vern brought us last week up to verse 14, kind of the prayer of Paul, the big prayer. And the reason we can pray a big prayer is because we got a big Jesus. And in verse 15, look what he says. The Son is... The image of the invisible God. Just the first couple words, the Son is. That's what he's going to talk to us about the entire time today. He's going to tell you who he is. He's going to tell you about Jesus. And the first thing he says is, he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. This Greek word for the word image, it kind of means icon. Some of you, if you'd pull your phone out of your pocket, you have little icons on your phone. They're called apps. Here's what the definition of an icon is. It's just an object that has been shaped to resemble the form or the appearance of something. It's kind of what an app is. It's just representative of some computer program that you probably use every day. When I read that this week and I saw image of God my mind went back to Genesis 1.26 where it says that God created man in his image. See, he created you and I to resemble and to reflect his goodness, his holiness and love. But due to the fall, due to sin, it has marred that reflection. See, we don't naturally reflect and resemble God's character anymore. I want you to notice because I think there's a big difference between what Paul says about Jesus... And what we just read in Genesis 1.26, that Genesis says, you have been created in God's image, but look what Paul says up here. He says, the Son is the image of God. He doesn't just resemble him. He doesn't just appear to be him. He is him. He possesses the same nature as God. So therefore, if you have seen Jesus, 
you have seen the invisible God. Guys, Paul today is going to do everything he can to help you see Jesus clearly. Because if you do, if we jump down to kind of verse 18, there's this outcome. And so Paul says, I'm telling you that Jesus is God so that in everything he might have the supremacy. See, if you really understand who Jesus is, this Jesus who happened to be here on earth for 33 years, that he's really God, if you understand that, your only response is to make him first in your life. Different versions that you look at kind of will use, this one uses the word supreme. Some will put the word that he might have first place, but there's a version called the new, uh, or the American Standard Version. And look what it says. It says that in all things, he might have the preeminence. I tell you, when I saw that word preeminence, that just sounds like something you would ascribe to a Lord or a king or God. Let me tell you a definition of preeminence. Foremost, unrivaled, superior, unsurpassed, unequaled. Guys, verse 18 needs to be the goal of your life. Jesus is God, therefore your only response is to make him supreme first and he needs to have preeminence in your life. He's got to be first in your marriage. He's got to be first in your dating relationships. He's got to be first in your job and in your finances. There's a guy named Bob Buford. He's written a lot of books. One was called Halftime and really good book. And I think he just died here recently. But he tells this story about speaking at his son's graduation. Now, it tells you kind of the time period. It says he wore a three-piece suit. Some of you know what I'm talking about. A suit that actually had a vest with it, okay? And he spoke to the graduating class. And at the end, he kind of walked to the back of the auditorium. And he was going to kind of shake everybody's hand, all the students as they came out. And students started recessing out from the graduation. And the first student came through. And Buford thought, you know, kids might say something like, hey, thanks for speaking to us today. Or, hey, you did a good job. And he said the kid shook his hand, pointed and went, hey, you buttoned your vest wrong and just kept on walking. And Buford said he looked down and he had taken the first button and, or the first button and put it into the second hole. And here's what he said. It's not hard to button your vest, but when you get the first button wrong, everything looks bad. Some of you here who are in dating relationships, they're a wreck right now because you haven't put him first. Some of your marriages are in trouble right now because you have not put him first in your marriage. Some of your finances, we've been talking about trusting God. I wrote for the last year here about your finances and you just haven't made him first. Some of your families are a mess because you haven't made him first. And Paul is telling you that Jesus is God so that you will make him first and foremost, unrivaled and unequaled in your life. Now you could ask me, you could say, Todd, why is, why is Paul making such a big deal about Jesus being supreme and first? Because he is. Whether you make him that way or not, he is. Just let that sink in. He is supreme. He is first. He is preeminent. Now there's an additional reason that he's putting such emphasis here. See, something dangerous was going on at this church. This church had heard the gospel. They were, they were growing. But now there was a threat. And this threat was that some people were saying that Jesus was less than God. There was a threat to the deity of Jesus. They were saying things like, he's a pretty good guy. 
He's kind of equal with the angels, but he's definitely not God. He's definitely less than God. See, in their lives, they were making him prominent. They were not making him preeminent. And guys, as we study through this, we're going to be in this a couple weeks or really a couple months. And don't write this letter off as something that's just historical. You need to be careful that someone doesn't come in or something doesn't come into your story and threaten your faith in Jesus. Guys, Paul continues this theme of Jesus being first. And I want you to see what he says after this invisible image of the invisible God. He says, he is the firstborn over all creation. And I think Paul uses this term to kind of get their attention. Remember, they are trying to make Jesus less than. They saw Jesus as being a created being. So when they see firstborn, they're probably going, I see, we told you. But guys, firstborn doesn't mean being born first. Firstborn means rank. It means stature. It means of first importance, of first rank. See, Paul knew what he was doing here. He knew what he was writing because all throughout Scripture, this term refers to rank, not birth order. In the Old Testament, Israel is called the firstborn. Please know they weren't the first nation ever formed by God. They just had a special place in his heart. They had a special place in his sight. Psalm 89 verse 27 says this about King David. He says, I will appoint David to be my firstborn, the most exalted of kings of the earth. Guys, God is giving David a title and a position of rank. David wasn't first in his life. Let me remind you of that story. There's a, there's a prophet by the name of Samuel who's told to anoint the next king of Israel. And he's told to go to Jesse's house. Jesse has all kinds of sons. So when Samuel shows up, he naturally goes over to the one that was born first. He's the biggest. He's the first. God says, no, it's not him. Goes to the next one. Next one in birth order. No, it's not him. He just keeps going down. And finally they get to the end and no, it's not him. The youngest David was out tending sheep. You see, God chose David. He gave him a title and a position. David wasn't born first. Guys, now that we understand firstborn, what he's talking about here, he says, Jesus is the firstborn having highest rank in all creation. Let me ask you a couple questions. Who has the highest rank on a team? The coach. Who has the highest rank in a business? The owner. Who has the highest rank in a country? The president. Who has the highest rank in creation? The creator. So he's going to tell us about Jesus, the creator. He is God and he is the creator. I want you to look at verse 16 and it's going to be up here. There's actually two slides with this, but such an important verse. Would you guys read it out loud with me? Okay. Just kind of read this together. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see all the prepositional phrases there? In, by, and for. It's almost like he's putting, he is creator on the wall, and he's trying to get us to zero in to make sure we understand that Jesus is the creator. Let me get you to think here for a minute. If I said, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Who do you picture doing the creating? I got to tell you, before I really studied this and read this this week, I kind of had this white-haired guy kind of weaving his hands together and making stars and everything come together. But Paul says, Jesus is the one you should picture because he's the creator of all things. He is the agent of the Godhead. And that's the paradox we're reading. The eternal one isn't old. The creator doesn't age. He just is. And guys, Paul doesn't leave any stone unturned. Notice what he said. Heaven, earth, visible, even the invisible, the angels and the demons. Jesus is the one that created them. And when you read that, I don't know how you can't say this is a big Jesus. But guys, I want to remind you how personal the creator is. See, um, we need to talk about a big Jesus but I think right here in this passage right here, it answers two really personal questions. Who am I and why am I here? Look up there. Who are you? You've been created by him. Why are you here? You've been created for him. You are the unique, the special, the precious, miraculous, supernatural creation of Jesus. Your value is inherent in the creation of Jesus and by Jesus. There's no job. There's no accomplishment, no pleasure. For those of you dating, no person, no boy, no girl, no man, no woman, no success, no fame, no money can ever trump what's already true about you right now. You are valuable just because Jesus created you. And I know there's some of you in this room that are probably going through a really tough time right now. Sometimes we get lost. We're in a real difficult spot. You need to know that because he planned you. He produced you. And it says that you bring him great joy. And please don't forget that little phrase at the end right here. Look at this. It says he holds all things together. So now that you know he planned you, now that you know he produced you, and now that for some strange reason you bring him a lot of pleasure and you put a smile on his face... Maybe today you need to say a little prayer if you're really struggling and go, I'm going to trust you to hold it all together because I sure can't do it right now. Guys, Paul tells us one more thing. He said he's God, he's creator, and then he says he is the head of the church. He tells us a lot more reasons why he's going to be first in our lives. And in verse 18, he says this. He's the firstborn among the dead. Now, you already know firstborn doesn't mean born first because there were others who actually were brought back from the dead like Lazarus. See, the difference is that Lazarus died again. Jesus may not have been the first, but he was the most important. He was the first one to actually stay out of the tomb. When Jesus went and talked to Lazarus' sister named Martha, he said to her, he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And guys, he backed it up. He's the first one out of death and darkness. He's the first one out of the grave. He owns death. He actually stands over death because he ranks over death and death is now subservient to him. And here's the great news for you and I. Because of his rank, because of his power, he has the power to bring us with him. And Paul says, that's why he has to be first. 
Now, there's something else that Paul highlights in this passage we're looking at, and it's about Jesus being the head of the church. And in verse 19, he says this up here. He says, for God, you know, we've got a God who expresses himself in a trinity. He says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus. Now, remember, there's people out there trying to make Jesus less than. And Paul takes one of their words, this word fullness in the Greek. Here's what it actually meant. The sum total of all divine power and attributes. I want you to keep that word fullness in your mind because it's going to give some meaning to something we're going to talk about here in just a moment. So up here it says, God was pleased that all his fullness was in Jesus. But he's also pleased for another reason. Jesus was trying to reconcile people back to God and that put a smile on God's face. I want to read a couple of passages it's two verses, 20 and 22. And I just want you to notice the word reconciliation as I read them. Look up here. And through him, he reconciled to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If we skip down one verse, it says, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. And remember, the physical body had all the fullness of God through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. There's a reason that He uses reconciliation two times here. Reconciliation is used as when a relationship has been broken. Paul tells us, what's happened, what the break is. It's right in between those two verses about reconciliation. Look what he says right in between them. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies. Do you see the problem? It's right in that, that second word and that third, ver, or third word. You were. Now that's a real contrast from what he's been talking to us about. He's been telling us all about the he is. You see, the problem and the relationship breakdown has happened between in God and man. The he is and the you were aren't even in the same galaxy. So what do you do? What do you do when you got a problem like that? I thought of some options. Maybe God could just lower his standards a little bit to help us out. He can't do that. He's God. He wouldn't be God if he lowered his standards. What about you and I? Maybe another option is maybe we could find a different way to please God. But it seems like from the beginning of time, that's all we've been trying. And nothing we do ever seems enough. So you have this God-sized problem that only a God can solve. Remember those detractors, those people that were saying that Jesus was less than. They couldn't believe that God could have anything to do with this idea of being human. And Paul is looking at you and saying, it has everything to do with his humanity. Peace and reconciliation are brought about because in the full human body of Jesus was the fullness Remember that definition? The sum total of all divine power and attributes. See, in the human body of Jesus is God. In the human body of Jesus is the creator of the universe. In the human body of Jesus is the head of the church. He deserves to be first. Your only response is to make him preeminent and supreme. Guys, early in our service today, after one of the songs, uh, Steve read John chapter 3, verse 30. If you remember, it said, He must become greater and greater, 
and I must become less and less. John the Baptist is the one who said this. John had this privilege of being the one that was going to introduce Jesus to the world. And guys, I thought about just that statement up there. First part says, when he must become greater and greater. I said this to you earlier. He is great whether you choose to make him great or not. But I will tell you this. I think deep down in the heart of Jesus, he has this hope that you're going to find a way to make him great in your life because he is God. He is creator. He is the head of the church. See, as you try to elevate him in your life, it kind of becomes less and less about you. And I, I just wonder how somebody hears that, especially who's not a Jesus follower, because you say, you mean I've got to get less and less? I'm going to be nothing? Guys, when you elevate him, you're not going to shrink. You shrink when you elevate yourself. But guys, when you elevate him, he becomes big. And he becomes the he is. And he takes that you were. And he tells you you're a you are. See, that's really where we're going in this book of Colossians. The he is wants to come and live inside of you. So he is in you. And when he does that, he changes everything. That's where we're going. Let's pray. Jesus, open our eyes. May our encounter, maybe we've had an encounter a long time ago. Maybe some of us are having an encounter today. But I just pray that all of us somehow are going to see you much more clearly. And when we do, there's no option. There's no option but to make you first, to make you unrivaled in everything we do, in our decisions, in what gets our attention this week, in who we choose to be around. And we do want you to change everything because we can't change it on our own. And God, like I said, I, I know there may be some here today that are just really struggling and remind them how big you are and you can hold together what seems breaking apart. So God, if somebody, Jesus, if somebody needs you here, help them to respond, love to talk to them during our worship or after this. And also, um, I think after just hearing about you today, our only response is to worship you. So that's what we're going to try to do here in these next few minutes. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.